Well, good morning once again, brothers and sisters. I hope that you are doing well. And if you have your, your Bibles, I invite you to please go ahead and turn to Psalm 13 as we continue along in our Summer in the Psalms series. Last week, we looked at um, Psalm 12. And as we already read again this morning, Psalm 12, as we began our, our gathering, it kind of like this group of psalms does, it brings us into this pit of despair, in a sense. A, uh, a feeling of abandonment from lying neighbors and flattering lips and boastful tongues. It takes us right into the idea or the, the gritty understanding, the reality on, in this fallen world, how the, the wicked use their speech to deceive and try to control us. And yet again, we were shown from Psalm 12 that our hope is in the Lord. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Our, our brother did a wonderful job unpacking and preaching that psalm last week. And if you missed it, I encourage you to go to our, our website and, and listen to it. This morning... We are now going to look to Psalm 13 and begin reading in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me. O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Because I have trusted in your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And this is the word of the Lord. May his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. A short psalm, just six verses, opens up with four interrogative statements, doesn't it? Statements in the form of, of questions that start, with, start the same way. How long? Again, right within this grouping of 10 through 14, we're... We're drawn into the gritty reality that living in a fallen world, these are the kind of questions that we, followers of Christ, those who follow Christ, might even find themselves asking the Lord. Again, the, the same theme as the other Psalms in this group. What would, what would cause this person... What would cause David or, or anyone else who, who loves the Lord, who earnestly desires to follow the Lord, to ask these kind of questions? How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Deep sorrow, pain, suffering, what sometimes is called the dark night of the soul. I'm not sure historically how it happened or when it happened. But at some point, Christians were taught that emotions do not matter. And certainly I know that I have said from this pulpit that our emotions should never control us. They certainly attempt to manipulate us and to master us. But I have never said that emotions do not matter. They do matter. Truth absolutely matters. Truth is what guides us. And we subject our emotions under the truth of the word of God. But at some point, we have been taught in some ways, or maybe even by example, that how we feel our emotions our feelings, if we want to call them that, are completely irrelevant. 
We can be fearful sometimes. We can be fearful of, in a sense that if we feel too much, we can be fearful because we have so much emotion that we begin to think, oh no, maybe I'm a charismatic. <laughs> if I'm too happy or if you're too happy or whatever it may be, we might begin to think people might see us and they might think maybe they're just shallow. They really don't know what it feels like to suffer or live in this world. If we appear to be sad or scared, anxious, even depressed, we're fearful that we will instantly hear the counsel and the correction of others. You're just not trusting in the Lord enough. And the result of that, the result of all of this, emotions are irrelevant, the result of that is that this place, the church, can be a place where then emotions are suppressed in such a way where everyone walks on edge with everyone else and we're not able to get out or express or talk about the things that we really need to talk about. The Lord has created us to be a people with emotions. We have feelings. We just heard some back there. We have feelings. We have emotions and ignoring them does not make them go away. I have learned on a bajillion occasions that as a husband you cannot say stop being sad and expect that the sadness is just going to go away. The Lord has created us with emotions. He has created us to be thinking creatures as well. We think deeply so that we feel deeply. And as image bearers, made in the image of God, imago dei, right? Image bearers, he is the God of emotions, isn't he? The, the, the word of God, the scripture often describes the Lord with, with anthropomorphic language, meaning language about man that we can understand in, in such a way where it says that, that the Lord is sad, that he's grieved or he's angry or he's jealous or he or he even hates, right? We saw that in Psalm 11, how he hates the, the wicked and the works of the wicked. It says that he's compassionate in love and that he even has wept. Jesus has wept. And so we have to be careful with this pendulum effect of how we handle our emotions, not only with ourselves, but also with one another. Certainly, we are not to be ruled by them. I cannot, re, I cannot reiterate that enough. But that doesn't mean that we should ignore them completely. As Calvinists, we shouldn't be stoic and unfeeling. Because that's not Calvinism. Calvinism draws us into deep, glorious doctrines. By the way, Calvinism is what we call just good biblical theology. Good Bible theology. It draws us into gloriously deep doctrines of God. And they cause us to contemplate the rich and deep theology of the Lord. It brings us into a mind that never can be completely uh, discovered, that never can be completely mined out completely. It's always full. It's always being renewed. We'll always find something new and more glorious forever and ever. And that's why eternity is always going to be just amazing one day after the next day. Because it's the glories of God can never be discovered completely. We'll always be going for more and more and we'll find another depth and depth. And in Calvinism draws us into such deep, rich theology of the Lord, where it teaches us how to grieve sin like no one else. It teaches us how to be the most excited about the grace of God. It teaches us how to suffer and to feel sympathetically and empathetically those who are hurting around us. It teaches us about the sovereignty of God, and that gives us assurance and peace. And so when we look at Psalm 13, and the Psalter 
the Psalter in general, they are lovingly reminding us that our Lord, our Lord loves our honest emotions. In fact, he welcomes them and he hears them. And like in Psalm 13, he is showing us how great honesty with him creates more intimacy with him. And so the first point from Psalm 13 is the questions we ask. During suffering when, is when everything is exposed. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It all comes up. And, and we have the, the kinds of emotions within that that causes us to ask these kinds of questions. Verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? And unpacking these four questions, what we understand and see that this is, these are the, the natural response in a way Excuse me, to suffering. I don't think that these are questions of doubt. And, and, and nor, should that, nor should that be the first response to others when we hear such questions. They're not questions of doubt to, 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 to suffering or, or even accusations. But they're questions of assumption. They're questions of assumption. David is rightly assuming that the Lord is going to act. That the Lord will act. The problem is, is we just don't know when. We, we don't know when. When will the Lord act? That's what we want to know. When will this end? When will this be over? The psalmist knows. David knows. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. And that he, and David knows his reputation. David knows the Lord's reputation, that he is good in keeping his promises. And he just wants to know, how long? How long? He also knows that the Lord is concerned for his people, and he knows the plight of his people. Back in Psalm 9, David has already confessed that the, the Lord will not forget the inflicted forever. Verse 12. And so then the first how long is not a question of doubt or an accusation, but it's an urging to the Lord to act. In chapter 10, verse 14, the wicked has said, to the, has said that the Lord has hidden his face. It's the very thing that the wicked want us to believe, that the Lord has hidden his face from us and that he will not see which is the exact opposite of what the Lord is doing. And David knows that. And so when he asks these questions in verse 1, he is prompting in the assumption, knowing that God is going to act. God is going to show himself to him and to let him know that he is with him. In verse 2, it's, it's about him internally handling the attacks of the wicked, isn't it? How long must I continue to preach to my soul? You can almost hear these words in his voice, can't you? I can only hold on so long. I can only carry this weight so long. It, it doesn't matter how strong you are. A measly 10 pounds, if you're carrying that or not, it doesn't matter. Over time, it's going to become heavy to anyone. How long? And although these questions are certainly, I believe, founded in confidence in the promises of God, they, they still come as a result of suffering and pain. One of my favorite preachers has said, pain always hurts, and I think that's exactly where these questions come from. Where is God? Where are you, God? Have you abandoned me? 
And these are not questions far from the Christian experience. And I, I guarantee at, at some point, some of us may have asked those questions or something like that. Even though we may never say it out loud or admit it to one another, we might have asked questions like that and even prayed that way. But as the psalm shows us, asking these kind of questions, brothers and sisters, is, is showing us that we are in good company. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century, who is known as the Prince of Preachers, once announced from his pulpit at the great church in London that he preached and pastored. He announced to his church about himself, admitting his struggle with depression and fear. If you ever read any of his uh, numerous biographies that are on, are on him or any of his words or sermons or lectures to the students, you would, you would hear about some of these things. And you might remember that he was plagued for decades, with awful physical ailments. He lived daily in excruciating pain for most of his life from various sicknesses and diseases. And on top of that, even as pastor and preaching, he faced enemies. He faced enemies of the gospel, enemies that of his Enemies of the church from outside and even worse from inside of the church. And yet 10 years before that, before he made that public confession, he said this in the sermon when he was preaching from Isaiah 41 verse 14. He said, periodical tornadoes and hurricanes will sweep over the Christian." He will be subjected to as many trials in his spirit as trials in his flesh. This much I know. If it, will, if, if it be not so with all of you, it is so with me. I have to speak today to myself. And while I should be endeavoring to encourage those who are distressed and downhearted, I shall be preaching, I trust to myself, for, a, for I need something which shall cheer my heart. My soul is cast down within me. I feel as if I would rather die than live. I need your prayers. I need God's Holy Spirit. And I felt that I could not preach today unless I should preach in such a way as to encourage you and to encourage myself in the good work and labor of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you walk long enough with the Lord, then maybe you could relate with Spurgeon in those words, and maybe not walking long with the Lord at all. And brothers and sisters, when these kinds of words are said by our other brothers and sisters, these kinds of words, we should listen closely and take the advice of Spurgeon and to pray and to encourage them, and to walk with them in those times. Are there times when it seems like your prayers are hitting a, a brick wall, or it just seems difficult at all to, to pray or even open the Bible to read it? When spiritually life seems empty and void? Then in a morbid kind of way, isn't it encouraging to hear David, the man after God's own heart asked these kinds of questions. How long? When will this sorrow, when will this suffering, when will this pain end? You know, time flies when you're having fun. But when you're suffering, when you're suffering or in, t in pain, time crawls. Spend some time in a hospital and you will understand what it feels like. And I feel like I need to make an important distinction here. That nowhere in the text tells us here that this suffering is in a direct result to his sin. Now certainly sin does have its consequences and even long-term effects. Sin can and does hinder the blessings of God on the believer. 
But suffering and pain is not always because of our sin. And yet, it's still, we still can experience how those blessings are hidden from us as they were hidden from David. So how do we get in such an awful place? Well, sometimes we're just plain physically tired. Physically, emotionally, spiritually drained and wore out. I mean, after all, we are finite creatures living in a fallen world with a failing flesh. An example of this from the scripture was the prophet Elijah, who after the, the great triumph of God on Mount Carmel, right, quickly spiraling, he quickly spiraled down into a dark hole of depression as he faced threats of it on his life. And so certainly we could see that, but it may, man, after you just experienced what God had done in Mount Carmel, and as brave and courageous as you were before the prophets of Baal, Elijah was weary. Elijah was tired and needed some food, right? And he needed some, some sleep, and God sent that to him and provided for his physical needs. A mother to an infant who has, had not, who has not had a full night's rest in weeks or even months. You are going to feel spiritually drained and exhausted along with so many other physiological things that is going to cause you to be tired, to feel like you're going to want to ask these kinds of questions. Work 12-hour workdays week after week and see what happens. Stress at work can cause loss of sleep and so many other things. And so many other things can happen at work, and in time, you too will be asking how long. Maybe you're dealing with a long-term illness or, or an injury from an accident that was years ago. And yet, there seems there's no cure or there's no end in sight from this pain. Maybe you've lost your job, and you haven't been able to find work, and the bills are piling up. People who have children with special needs face the stress of every day having to do almost everything for their child with so many other challenges to take care of them. And the kind of challenges and strains that that puts on a marriage. Caring for a loved one day in and day out who has dementia or Alzheimer's. Maybe there is a new pressure at work to conform to violate your conscience and your beliefs. Maybe there's a problem within your family. Difficulties in your marriage, family difficulties, infertility, a wayward child, or, or, or maybe even the desire to be married itself. All of these can be long roads and put such a weight on us that can physically exhaust us and cause us to ask these questions, how long? And even if we are able to handle these situations in the most godly of ways, and in the most faithful of ways, enduring for years and years and years, given the right amount of time, the flesh is weak. And we might be like David in asking, how long, O Lord? Has God really forgotten me? Has God really hidden his face from you? And in those times, we begin to take this introspection of ourselves, believing this, this lie that all of this is our own fault. That it's all our own fault. And now, for some reason, God is punishing us. Will our enemies really overcome us? Listen to this from Isaiah 49, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And I want to stop right there. 
Because the answer to that question is all of us may be saying no. The answer to that question is yes. In a fallen world, in a sinful world, the answer to that question is yes. Because look at the next, look at the next line. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. You see, our hearts may tell us that you, have, that you might have been forgotten, that God has hidden his face from you. Time can do that. Pain can do that. Suffering can do that. Trials can do that. Loneliness can do that. But here again, from God's word, I'm going to show you over and over again that the Bible is true, that the Lord has not forgotten us. The gospel tells us that we have been saved by grace. And if we have been saved by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, then, then he has taken our punishment. We do not suffer that punishment for our sin. Our punishment is not punitive. The punishment from God to his, to his children is not punitive. But rather what he is doing in us, he is refining us from sin. He is refining us from loving the world and uh, loving the things of the world to love him and to find a greater joy in Christ. And so underneath all of our suffering, as mysterious as it may be, we don't understand it. I can't, we can't pinpoint every little reason and every little detail and all the things that God may be showing you through that. But in all of our suffering, we understand that there is a loving, sovereign, heavenly Father who is working out all things for His glory and for your good. And as encouraging as it is to hear David, right? Misery loves company. Here it is. We're with David on this. And as good as it is, it may be to, to relate with David more than that. I want you to hear how we relate to our Savior Jesus Christ in our suffering. Because he himself is the suffering servant. He took on flesh. He faced harsh treatment in evil intent and slander from men. From his very own, those who should have welcomed him and worshipped him. And he went to the cross, submitting himself to the evil will of evil men. And he endured the worst pain and anguish imaginable. A man of sorrows, a man of grief. And he suffered not only the physical anguish of the cross, but he suffered the full measure of the wrath of God for sin. Where his own father turned his face away from him because Christ became sin so that his enemies could be saved. And so, brothers and sisters, when we ask how long, when we ask, well, how long in the times of suffering, in pain, in this fallen world, whatever it may be for the myriads of reasons that there may be, in a lesser way, we are identifying ourselves with Jesus who prayed on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These might may be the questions that we ask. And, and I want to tell you that, ask them. But we ask them in anticipation. We ask them in the assumption, in anticipation of the ultimate deliverance that is to come. And as the Apostle Paul has so encouraged us, love this text, we love this verse. From 2 Corinthians verse or chapter 4, verse 16, 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so that brings me to my second point this morning from these questions in verses 1 and 2 that we may ask to now the prayers we pray in the emotional time of suffering. 
as we said earlier, the dark night of the soul. And as Christians, when we face such things, we are driven to our knees, aren't we? We're driven to our knees to, to pray. In fact, it is suffering that teaches us not only to pray, but suffering teaches us how to pray. Verse 1 and 2 is part of the prayer, asking the questions, but verse 3 and 4, David presents requests that are matched with, matched with reasons why the Lord should answer his prayers. Look at verse 3. He says, Consider and answer me. O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over them, over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am forsaken. So, so here are three things that David wants the Lord to do. His request, number one, is to consider. To consider, to, to take note, Lord, take note, consider. Look at all that I am going through, this, this hardship, this suffering. You know, that's, that's one thing that any one of us, that when we are going through something difficult, when we're going through some suffering, we want others to, to be empathetic, to empathize with us. We want people to understand and come alongside us and understand as we go through this, which makes, uh, which makes all of this so much harder because, because we don't know how to express it in a way of those emotions to others because we're maybe in fear of judgment of some kind. And yet the Bible is telling us as Christians and believers to be empathetic and to be sympathetic with our brothers and sisters, to bear with one another, to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to weep with those who are weeping. And David tells the Lord, ask the Lord, Lord, take note, consider. He wants the Lord to, to empathize with him and see his condition. It's like when Children desperately want to get your attention. They'll say your name or they'll say what at your, yeah, they'll say your name numbers of times, hundreds of times. And as parents, you, you begin to train yourself to sometimes not listen. And when they really want to get your attention, they'll get right in your face and they'll say, Daddy, are you watching me? Are you listening? And it's sort of the same way. This is sort of how David's praying. Father, take note. Consider. The truth is, as we pray this prayer, we pray this knowing that the Lord is already committed to us. Remembering the word of God. Remember what Jesus told us right before his ascension. In fact, it's the last thing he said before his ascension, right? He says, I am with you always. And the second thing, he wants the Lord to answer me. And that's the, that's the prayer I think we all want. We, we pray wanting God to answer. Lord, answer. Like we, under, we understand this request, but, but, but sometimes we, we don't want to pray this way. It's a hard request because we feel like that if we say, God, will you answer me here? Answer me, answer me. That in some way we're trying to coerce the Lord into answering us, even sounding a little demanding. But David is clearly showing that it's okay to pray this way. And I believe Jesus has showed us to pray this way, right? Remember the widow who would continually, persistently go to the unrighteous judge, pleading her case until finally she answer, or he answers her request. And Jesus says, my heavenly father is not like this unrighteous judge. He's going to hear you. Keep asking. And so we pray, answer me. Answer me. And we pray in faith, knowing that, that he may answer our prayer. He may, he may be waiting for us to answer our, our, answer our prayer, just for us to ask to answer the prayer. Or he may not, but still we ask in faith and trusting in assumption and anticipation that he will. And third, David wants the Lord to enlighten him, doesn't he? To open his eyes, to have more understanding. Isn't that a wonderful prayer? Isn't that a prayer that maybe you might have prayed before? And that's clearly a, a, a necessary prayer in the times of prayer. Lord, help me understand your ways. Lord, help me to understand your ways. 
And you know, the answers do not come by rainbows and white doves in the sky. He shows it to us in his word. And so when we pray for understanding, then know that it is the Holy Spirit that is going to enlighten, illuminate his word in your, in your, in your hearts to understand. And as David makes these three requests, he prays. Similarly, we've seen in previous Psalms that he knows again what's true. Lord, I know you do not want me to die by the hands of my enemies. I know your reputation is bound to my own, so you will not leave me. And I know you don't want my enemies to rejoice over me. But again, here is the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ who while he was on the cross, what did his enemies say? If you're God, then save yourself. Isn't that what the enemies say? Isn't that exactly what, what we hear? And yet what was God's victory? What was God's conquering? What was God's strength and glory shown in? The death of his son. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us, even when our enemies rejoice over us. I think very clearly the application here, brothers and sisters, is not simply we should just pray, or we should pray more. We already know that. You, you know that. I don't have to tell you that. I don't have to beat you in the head that, with my Bible that to convince you you need to pray more. We get that. We all get that guilt every time it's said. But rather... It's when we pray, I think we are to clearly feel. We should pray as we feel and how we feel in that moment. And that it is okay to pray. Consider, Lord, take no, look at me. The enemies are coming around me. And though it may seem as if the Lord is not near or that he has uh, abandoned you in those difficult seasons by faith. Our posture in coming to pray is still a posture of faith, believing, assuming, anticipating the Lord's deliverance. Let me give you a, a few of what I sometimes call the, cop, the coffee cup verses. You know, Bible verses that they don't, these places don't exist anymore. The, the books, Christian bookstores. Some of y'all are old like me. You might remember that there used to be bookstores. It used to be called Christian bookstore. And you go in there and they had usually a bunch of really useless books. And you'd find a few treasures every now and then. But then a bunch of junk. Like just, like, if you, know, if you remember what a testament is, you come tell me later. Testament. Okay. Come tell me later what, if you remember what that is. And, and coffee cup verses are like the ones you'll buy the coffee cup and, 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 and you'll, you'll read a verse on it. And you'll be like, oh, yeah, Jesus is with me. My coffee's good. Right? But often it's, the, it's, it's verses actually written in context in like deep despair and sorrow. So like, so like this one, right? James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Yes. But it's written to suffering, persecuted Christians in the, the, uh, the diaspora. I mean, there's suffering all over the world. They've been, they've, been, uh, they've been dispersed because of suffering. And it's written to them in their suffering. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Again, the temptation is what? The temptation in suffering, brothers and sisters, listen to me. The temptation in suffering and trials and even in our sin is to run, to hide, to build shields around us and not let people in or not let the Lord in. But the Bible tells us to do the exact opposite, to draw near to God, to go near God, to go to his people, to tell his people, to unload onto them that they may bear with you. We are our brother's keeper. Another coffee cup verse, Jeremiah 29. Usually it's Jeremiah 29, 11, but I'm going to give you Jeremiah 29, 13 through 14. You seek me and find me when you seek me with your heart. Ah, that's some good coffee right there. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place which I've sent you in exile. Now this is such a glorious text. It's a glorious text, but again, it's written in the context of a suffering remnant. Actually, a suffering remnant that is suffering actually under the hand of God. God's wrath, God's, excuse me, his judgment on his people for turning away from him. They're in captivity. And here the, the suffering servant Jeremiah, the prophet, says this to them that they can find hope. What? They can find the Lord when they seek them with all of their hearts. That God has not run from us. He has not ran from us. He has hidden from us. And so we pray and we tell him. Here's another one. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, asking, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus was the perfect example of how we should pray. He prayed often and he prayed much for strength, the strength of his own heart. Hebrews 5, 7 testifies this about Jesus in his own prayer life. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, it was able, to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. This is how we follow Jesus in his footsteps. This is how we endure. And we pray. We pray in truth. We turn to the Lord. We pour out our hearts to him, and we pray even as our Savior did, even if it's with loud cries and tears. And lastly, at the end of Psalm 13, David close, closes with assertions of what he does and what he has done. And you look at verse 5, he says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt with me bountifully. What a turn, right? What a turn in the, in the passage. And, and, and it's instructive, not only in what David has done, but it's instructive to us in, in how we will wait and how we will endure while asking the questions and while praying. He says this, number one, I have trusted in your love. And if you look to the grammar of this statement, it is not passive. This is not, this isn't passive. He's not He's not waiting around, but this is something that he has already done. He has already acted in the love of God, in trusting. But he is also not saying that I need the trust or I will trust, but he says, I have trusted. Meaning the foundation of trusting brothers and sisters in the steadfast love of God is already to have been set in its place. The anchor is already set before the storm comes. The anchor will do very little if you throw that thing out when the storm is already tossing the ship. But if the anchor is in Christ, and is found in the steadfast love of God now, then you will find that anchor to hold. And if you don't know much about boats or anchors, I don't really know that much. But I do know that if that anchor holds, it pivots off that point. So we're going to move, but you're going to stay. You're going to stay. The anchor is finding our trust in the steadfast love of God. The steadfast love of God in the Hebrew, chesed, which is the Greek, which is the same idea of the Greek New Testament word agape, which means God's loyal love in, to, his, uh, to his people, to keep his promises and his commitment to his people. That's the anchoring of, faith, of trust, 
faith in the love of God today, brothers and sisters, will prepare you for the time of suffering later. And two, he, he, says, he says he will rejoice. So not only is I have, I have already put my, my trust in the steadfast love of God, but he says, I will rejoice. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So, so did you know that simultaneously, as your heart is in absolute anguish, it can also rejoice and be thankful? How about that? How about that? More than knowing that our sins are forgiving as wonderful as that is, the hope in our salvation gives us assurance and comfort that our salvation will be made complete. Rejoicing in our salvation then gives us comfort and peace in our hearts. It quiets our minds. It heals our bodies. And remember that the one who is on the throne and Revelation 21, verse 5 said, Behold, I am making all things new. We are looking forward and rejoicing in God's salvation now and the salvation that is yet to come. But listen to this, O saint, from Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Now, isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that truth, doesn't that truth just transcend anything that we may face? As we, we prayed over this momentary affliction, that the truth of God's word transcends anything, and it gives us perspective. It's digging that anchor, it's setting that anchor even now gives us a perspective that's beyond our suffering now. And three, I love this, what he says. He says, he will sing to the Lord. So not only is there internal action, but there is an external action. I will sing. You think about how counterintuitive that is. Think about how weird that is to a fallen world that doesn't understand our singing, even when we're happy, doesn't understand these things but that we would sing even in our suffering. And brothers and sisters, I, I love this point. Because I love what we do every Sunday in our singing together. What we do together is more, is way more than just tradition. It's biblical. It's spiritual. It evokes emotion. You know, ten times in the New Testament, we see the church singing. Paul and Silas singing in the jail in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. What a bunch of weirdos. They're in chains for preaching the gospel. And they're singing. In Revelation 15, at the very end, all the hosts of heaven are doing what? They're singing songs of the Lamb. We need to sing and sing together. Brother, the brother who walks in and has all of those emotions and feelings of suffering and trials and pressures and weariness and whatever it may be, and he may not know what to do with all of those things. And he can walk in here any given Sunday and hopefully we'll have a perspective and a mind to look over and maybe see an older saint in Christ who is singing loudly and boldly the biblical truth of standing on the promises of God. Singing, I stand amazed. Singing with joy afflicted, won the battles fierce but the victory won. And they see that older saint singing these songs boldly and loudly. And they know, they, they, they know that seeing this older saint that who has been walking 
through this life, not only for many years because they are an older saint, but they have been walking through years of pain and trials and loss and hardship and maybe even loneliness. Years and years and years. And yet still they come and they sing and they rejoice in the steadfast love of God in Christ Jesus. How can that not encourage and build one of you up? How can that not cause you to rejoice and to sing along with them that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our tears that may flow down our cheeks, we sing because as it says here in Psalm 13, verse 6, because he has dealt bountifully with me, regardless of our circumstances. So it's okay to feel it's okay to hurt. It's okay to express those emotions to the Lord. It's okay to express those emotions to one another. It's okay to ask, how long, O Lord? And this psalm rightly applies to us all, doesn't it? It rightly applies to us all because in one way or another, despite all of our circumstances, no matter your experience of suffering or not or whatever trials, we are all persevering in this life, aren't we? And we are persevering together. Whether it's joys or sadness, all of our experiences are differently. But as we are persevering together, we are all persevering together, eagerly waiting the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are all asking, how long, O Lord? And yet like Paul, who is at the end of his life, we understand and desire the perspective for ourselves. 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, for I'm already poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And, will, and not only to me... Listen to this, brothers and sisters. And not only to me, but to all of those who have loved his appearing. And so then, until that day, as we all persevere and we endure together, let us call upon the Lord to consider and to act. Let us trust together and have faith. Let us rejoice in the Lord of our salvation. And let us sing together until that day. And all of God's people say...